We're in Psalm 51 today, and if you've got Bibles or a phone and you like to have that in front of you, you can go ahead and pull those out. We're going to start off with the scriptures, and I, I say you might as well stay standing because we always stand to honor the word of the Lord, so um, yeah, you're already doing that. <laughs> so let's read Psalm 51. For the director of music, a Psalm of David. No, no, I'm reading this on purpose. I need to start here. When the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your ways so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. And let's pray together. Thank you, God, for your word. Thank you that you are with us today. Thank you that you come and that you confront us, and that you call us out of our sin into your grace and into your light and into your love. May we each hear you calling this morning. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So today's our second week in the Psalms this summer. Last week we did Psalm 1, which is a wisdom psalm and opens the book of Psalms with a choice. If you want to choose the path of righteousness or if you want to choose the path of wickedness with all that each of those entails. Today we're, we're jumping up to Psalm 51, and this is what's known as a penitential psalm, which may be an unfamiliar word to you. That means it's a psalm of repentance. It's a psalm expressing remorse over sin and the desire to change, and in the midst of that, calling out to God for mercy. There's, I think, six or eight penitential psalms in the book of Psalms, but this is considered the, the kind of the high point of the penitential psalms, the central point. And so today we're going to be taught, we're going to walk through the psalm and we're going to talk about repentance. And before I get into the psalm, I want to say that this is a topic for many of us that we have a, a, a history or a background with that is not very helpful. 
And it's not intentional, it's just most of us are raised, and I'm guilty of this as a parent, Um, if you've had siblings, or even if you haven't had siblings, if just as you're growing up, you do something wrong, and what do your parents do? They say, tell them you're sorry. And there's no connection to, like, do you actually wish you hadn't done it? Do you actually feel like you did something wrong? It's just tell, just say sorry, right? Because parents were typically very interested in peace, and we want the fighting to stop. <laughs> and if you tell them, you're, if you get, your, you know, you tell your brother you're sorry, and then what does your brother have to do? I forgive you. And again, it doesn't matter how your brother actually feels about this. It doesn't matter what's really going on. It's just let's stop the fight and move on and get this over with. And, um, and we often, many of us carry that into adulthood, and you can see that. You look at, like, famous apologies. You look at people who've had to, these celebrities, politicians, who've had to offer public apologies. What are they typically doing? They're trying to convince you that they feel really bad about what they've done. That's it. <laughs> that's, that's as far as it goes. And then the, the hope is that, okay, I've said I'm sorry, now you can forgive me, and we can all move on and pretend this never happened. And, um, and what's really unhelpful about this is a couple things. It centers repentance on emotion, first of all, because we want everybody to feel better. And to do that, we need to communicate how badly we feel about what we've done, as if these were the central issues. And it also centers repentance typically on the other party. So if I've wronged you, then the, the point of repentance is to somehow get you to forgive me. I'm, I'm, I'm putting myself in a position where hopefully the, the remorse that I'm showing and the negative emotions that I'm feeling are enough to convince you that you should let it go, right? And then you let it go and then, then we're good. And neither of these things are actually true. The heart of repentance is not emotion. It is often emotional, repentance is, because we are dealing with difficult things. We're dealing with things we do often feel bad about, and it's not wrong to feel bad about them. It's just not the point. Um, it's not centered on that. And, and the point of, emo- of repentance is not primarily about the other person. If it is, then it's not repentance. Because the literal meaning of repentance is to turn around. So if you're talking Greek, and this is true in Hebrew too, if you're talking these ancient languages, one of the ways you can use these words is to talk about like a literal change of direction. Like you're trying to get to Vanderhoof. Well, yesterday we were going to Bear Lake and I... I don't know what I was thinking, but I got on the highway heading towards McBride. Um, <laughs> like it's, I had to repent. <laughs> I had to turn around. I had to go, and I, I pulled off, and I turned around, and I went the right way, and I got to Bear Lake, right? Like, that's one of the meanings. So if repentance is all about you, well, that doesn't work, right? Like, if, if Christina's sitting in the car telling me I'm going the wrong way, she's not the one who has to do something. I'm driving. I need to turn the car around. This isn't about her, right? It's about me. <laughs> You've been in the car with someone going the wrong way, haven't you? <laughs> they don't always listen. Are you sure you're going the right way? <laughs> so let's look at Psalm 51, because Psalm 51 teaches us what repentance is really about. It's, and it's broken into two parts. Verses 1 to 9 form the first half of Psalm 51, and verses 10 to 19 form the second half. And in the first half of Psalm 51, David is really focused on his need for mercy. So there is a need for forgiveness, but he's not earning it. He's not showing how bad he feels. 
so that God will forgive him. And, and actually, when you put repentance in the context of God is where all of the normal ways we think about it fall apart. Because you can't really imagine God saying, feel worse, feel worse, okay, I forgive you. Right? Like, he doesn't work that way. And you can't imagine God sitting up in heaven going like, seriously, I need you, fill in the blank. Right? Like, he doesn't need that. He longs for us to repent because he loves us and he wants what's good for us. But he doesn't need it in the sense of, like, it's about him. Like, we've, we've taken something away other than ourselves, right? And we have that, and that's why he pursues us. So the first half is all about David asking for mercy. And the second half is all about him asking for transformation. Because David recognizes that that's what we need. We need the mercy of God and the power of God to work transformation in us. And when we're dealing with repentance, we're dealing with the question of whether or not we will allow God to shower his mercy upon us and to work his change within us. Will we give him space to do that? That's the question of repentance. It's not about, do you feel really awful? You probably do, but it's not the point. It's not about, have you convinced God to do something? He wants to. Long before you've even recognized that there's a problem, God wants to shower his mercy upon you and to work his transformation within you. And David learns this and understands this. And so actually, before we jump into Psalm 51, I have to say a few words about context. I read the beginning part of Psalm 51, and someone chuckled about that. For the director of music, a psalm of David. Now, psalms often have that little bit of an introduction. You look at Psalm 49, for the director of music of the sons of Korah, a psalm. You look at Psalm 50, these are just the ones on the same page, a psalm of Asaph. They tell you who they're by. They might tell you who they're for, and that's usually it. That's usually as much as we get from a psalm, because psalms are poetry, and they're, they're songs, and they're prayers, and they're usually pretty contextless. That's without context. They, you know, they're, you know they're Hebrew poetry, and so you read them accordingly. They're poetry. They're not literal. They're Hebrew, so they use different poetic devices than we use in English, and they're intentionally left without any other context. We don't know why the author wrote it. We don't know how they were feeling when they wrote it. We don't know what was going on in their life because they're meant to speak to us in the midst of whatever context we're in. So you read a psalm that's praising God and giving deep thanks, and you can pull that out and, and you can give deep thanks from it. But there are a few psalms that are deepened by the context, and therefore we are given it. And this is one of them. Because after those two lines, for the director of music, a psalm of David, we're told exactly the context of this psalm. When the prophet Nathan came to him, came to David, after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba. Many of us know this story. If you don't, it's in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. And it's this story of David, who's this great king of Israel, and the, the battle season comes upon the nation of Israel, and he stays home. He sends off his generals, and he sends off his troops, and they all go to war to fight to defend the country, and he stays in his palace, and he relaxes. And one day, he's laying on his rooftop couch, he's chilling out, and he looks out upon the city that other people are defending, and he sees a beautiful woman bathing. And he invites her to the palace, and he sleeps with her. They commit adultery. Her name's Bathsheba, and, and she becomes pregnant. Now, David 
this is a compilation of sin. This is how sin works, right? His first sin is to send everyone else off to fight when he's staying home and relaxing. And then he's sitting up on his rooftop looking out on the city, and he sees a naked woman. And instead of averting his eyes and heading back inside, he watches for a little while and then calls her over. And then they commit adultery, and the natural consequence, she gets pregnant. And David, at this point, has one question. How do I get out of this? How do I make sure nobody catches me? So he comes up with plan A. Plan A is to call Bathsheba's husband, who is one of his loyal soldiers fighting on the front lines, home. So he calls Uriah home. Uriah the Hittite, by the way. He's not even a Jew. And he gets Uriah drunk. He invites him in for a banquet, and he feeds him amazing food, and he gives him lots of wine, and then he says, now go home and be with your wife. Right? Because if he goes home and he's with his wife and they sleep together, everyone will think that the child is Uriah's and no one will know about David's sin. Ironically, Uriah is too righteous for this. He can't imagine going home and relaxing with his wife while all of his comrades in arms are sleeping on the rocks at the front line. And so he refuses and sleeps on the front steps of the palace. Like, way to show up David, right? who's been laying on his rooftop couch while everyone else is fighting. So enter plan B. David's not done. Plan A didn't work. We'll do plan B. While Uriah sleeps on his front porch, he pens a letter to his general, instructing his general to put Uriah at the thickest point of the fighting, and when it gets really bad, to withdraw the rest of the troops so that Uriah dies. He delivers the letter by Uriah's own hand. And it works. Plan B works. Uriah dies, and nobody knows about David's sin. After Bathsheba's finished mourning, David invites her into his home again, and they get married, and she has his son. And it seems like he's got away with it. And we don't know exactly how long it is between that event and the confrontation with the prophet Nathan. It's at least nine months, because they have a baby. Um, So this is not like David wrestles with this for a couple days, and he's feeling really bad. Like, David figures he's got away. He's good. And then the prophet Nathan shows up. And in 2 Samuel chapter 12, we read about this confrontation. I'm going to read you a part of it. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb. He had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, his drink. It drank from his cup and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. What a confrontation, eh? Nathan pronounces judgment over David, and David declares, I have sinned against the Lord. He repents. And within the context of 1 Samuel 12, we only get that one line, I have sinned 
against the Lord. But Psalm 51 is the rest of what David is saying and going through in that moment. That's why we're told when the prophet Nathan came to him after David had committed adultery with Bathsheba, this psalm is what David, who is a poet among other things, composes and speaks in the midst of his repentance. Psalm 51 gives us the depths of what is going on in David's heart in that moment. And so let's look at these, this psalm in its two parts. In the first part, David is asking for mercy. He begins, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. David knows his first need. The prophet Nathan has come to him, and he's confronted him with his sin. And David himself has declared the appropriate judgment. David doesn't have a leg to stand on in terms of what God wants to do to him after this. Because with that story in front of him, and Nathan is... The prophet Nathan is quite smart, and God who sent him with this message is quite smart, because David grew up as a shepherd, right? Like, he's hitting him in the heart when he tells him this story of what this awful man did to his neighbor. And David, in his anger, in his burning righteous wrath, says, rightly, this man deserves to die. But he's talking about himself. So he has nowhere else to go except, have mercy on me, O God, and he has nothing to base that on except for the unfailing love and great compassion of his Lord. There is no other way that he can get forgiveness, and this is true for all of us. We don't have anything else with which to barter. Like, you can't go to God in the midst of sin and say, you know, I did all these good things, so maybe you can let this one go. It doesn't work that way. Lord, look how awful I feel. Yeah, so, like, David, you still killed a man to take his wife. You still deserve to die. And so the first need, and this, again, for all of us in the face of sin, in the face of our transgression and in our iniquity and in the face of our sin, is the mercy of God. We need our sin to be washed away. We need that to be covered and wiped out, because as long as it stands, we stand under a death sentence, just as David did. He keeps going, though, because in the midst of his need for mercy, David also recognizes that a key portion, a key part of the journey of repentance is that we need to understand our sin. And so in verse 3, he says, for I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Um. If we don't understand and know our sin, it is very difficult to walk in repentance. That's not to say we always have to have the depths of it in our mind, but when God confronts us with our sin, one of, one of my instincts, and I think one of most of our instincts, is to try not to look at it too much. Let's just get over it as quickly as we can and move on, because it's painful, and it's hard to realize what's really going on in our hearts. But for repentance to take hold... For us to be willing to change, we've got to know what we're turning away from. It's no good to to go back to the driving analogy. And let's imagine that there were lots of different roads. If you need to go that way and you're going this way, it's no good to change your course by that much. Yes, you've changed. You're still not going to get where you have to go. Like you're still heading in almost the completely opposite direction. And the same thing is true of our knowledge of sin. And David demonstrates his knowledge of sin in two ways. He demonstrates his knowledge of sin by recognizing that it is primarily against God. He says something that at first glance can be hard to swallow. Verse 4, against you and you only have I sinned. 
Um, what about Uriah? <laughs> like, didn't he also sin against Uriah? What about Bathsheba? Didn't he also... What about his general that had to obey this order? Like, wasn't, weren't there a lot of people affected by this sin? And of course, the answer is yes. David isn't denying those parts of what he has done, but he is centering rightly on the center of sin. Because in the end, all of our sin is primarily against God. There's a lot of fallout, though. God is the one who is the father, the heavenly father of Uriah and Bathsheba and his general and his army and himself. God is the only one who is affected by every aspect of the sin that David has committed and every aspect of the sin that we commit. Parts of it and pieces of it will always impact other people, including ourselves. But God takes on the whole. So he knows who he has sinned against. He knows that that means God is proved right and justified in his judgment. He also, though, and this is now jumping down to verse 5, recognizes the depths of the sin in him. So he recognizes the direction of his sin, that it is primarily against God. He also recognizes the truth of his sin. He says, surely I was sinful at birth. This is not a way of saying that he started killing people from the moment he was born. It's a way of saying that what he has done with Bathsheba and Uriah is not some fluke. It's not some accident. Like, I'm not really like this. I just messed up. That's not, no. This is the fruit of his twisted heart and soul, and it fits. It is part of who he is. And that's hard. That one is hard. But that too is true of each of us. We don't sin just a little, or occasionally, or by accident, like we're really good people, but once in a while we were a little bit, you know, wrong, a little bit insufficient. Oh, I, I didn't mean to, right? We really like to say that, and sometimes it's true. Things happen, and we didn't mean them to, but at the heart of it, we are sinners, and David recognizes this. This is part of the journey of repentance, to know who we are, and he contrasts that in verse 6. This is who I am. I'm sinful from birth, you, Lord, you desire truth in the inmost parts, and therefore you teach me wisdom. And David is beginning to, to, not to recognize, but to acknowledge the work of God in the midst of this. God isn't a kind, the kind of God, the kind of person who looks at us, sees what we lack, and then pushes us away and judges us and throws us out. He looks at us sees what we lack, and then acts to remedy that situation. You teach me wisdom in the inmost parts. You cleanse me. It sounds like a plea in English, cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. But it's actually a, a you do this. You, you do this and you will do this. Just like you do teach me. You do cleanse me. You do wash me, moving from verse 7 to verse 8. You will let me hear joy and gladness. The bones you have crushed will rejoice. And the Hebrew words there give you a picture of a dancing skeleton. <laughs> um, but that's what it's supposed to be. The word for rejoice is dance, too. Um, the, in all of these things, this is what God does. In the face of our sin, in the face of our lack, in the face of our twistedness, God steps in to act. And knowing that is why this whole section can be a cry for mercy, because we know that with God, there is mercy. And so we jump to verse 9, where he intentionally mirrors verse 1. 
Hide your face from my sin and blot out all my iniquity. Because of who you are, because you do these things, because you are the God who cleanses and teaches and washes and restores, wash these out so that we can move forward as he is going to in verse 10. In verse 10, we get into the second part of Psalm 51, and David changes gears. He's no longer asking for and declaring God's mercy. He's asking for and declaring God's miraculous power into his life. The very first word of verse 10 is create. Create in me a pure heart. And there are several words for create in Hebrew. Um, and lots of them are used of people, where you, you, you create um, an idol if you're doing something awful. You create dinner, you create a tent, you et cetera, et cetera. But there's one word in Hebrew that is only ever used of God. It's God's creative power, and only he can create like this. It's the word bara. It's one of the first, I think it's the second or third word in the Bible where God creates the heaven and the earth. And that's the word here. That's the prayer of David. Create bara in me, a pure heart. Do what only you can do, God. Create in the way that only you can create. And renew a steadfast or willing spirit within me. This is the heart of the transformation that David needs. He needs a pure heart and a steadfast and willing spirit. A heart purified of the sin that longs to des- for God. And that's what a pure heart is within the context of the Psalms. Purity of heart is to long for and delight in God. It's to have him at the center of your desire and your love. So he needs a heart that longs for God, and he needs a spirit that is faithful, steadfast, that will stand on the way of God and walk in the way of God and keep going in that way and not be turned to the left or the right into sin. And he needs a willing spirit, a spirit that is willing to accept the correction and the rebuke and the healing and the transformation and the power of God in his life. And so he prays for these things. Create in me this pure heart, this steadfast spirit, this willing spirit. And then, then he will be able to do what he's meant to do, which is to teach other sinners their way and to cry out to God in worship. And these two, he's praying to God to allow. So he is lost. He's the king. He's meant to be an example and a teacher to lead in worship and all these different things. And because of his sin, he has lost that. His lips have been shamed into silence, and he has not lived an example worth following by anybody. And so he is asking in this transformation that those things be restored. And again, this is what we all need when it comes to our walking with God. Our sin shames us, but God doesn't want us to be in that place. We're not supposed to live in shame. He wants to free us from that. He wants to open our lips that we can praise him and lead us in a life worthy of following so that we can be an example to other people. And so again, this is what David asks for. Save me from my blood guilt, O God. My tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, O Lord. My mouth will declare your praise. Restore to me the position and the place that I'm supposed to have. And in the midst of this cry for for transformation and restoration, David centers He zeroes in on, narrows down the point to the one thing that he needs to offer to the Lord. So far, David hasn't offered anything. It's all ask. He's asking for mercy. 
He's asking for transformation. He's asking for restoration. He's declaring what he believes in faith that God is going to do. But here, he speaks of his offering in verse 16 and 17. You do not delight in sacrifice or I would bring it. I'm reading probably a different version that's up there. But um, you do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. But my sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit. A broken spirit and a contrite heart you will not despise. This is what he comes with. This is what he offers. And this is the center of both true repentance and true worship. Because it is only a heart that is humbled and contrite and broken, not in the sense we use the phrase of a broken heart to talk about like love unrequited, right? Where you you loved someone and then they broke your heart. That's not what he's talking about. Here, the image of a broken heart is a heart that is open to God and broken in realization of its own sin and of its own farness and distance from God. That's why the other word here is contrite. And the reason that this is that central place is because this is the heart that will allow God to work. It is a humble heart that cries out for mercy. It is a contrite heart that recognizes its own inability to do all the things that need to be done. It's a broken heart that knows it has nothing, right? There's nothing that David can offer. All he can do is throw himself upon the unfailing love and great compassion of God. And we get verse 18 and 19, which is a bit of a postscript about the people of God um, and about the desire for restoration, not just for David as an individual, but for the whole nation and for a restoration of the right worship of God. And just as a side point, it may sound odd. You don't delight in sacrifice. You don't take pleasure in burnt offerings, verse 16. Oh, and your good pleasure restores Zion, and then you'll, you'll, you know, accept and delight in offerings. Like, wait a second. Do you delight in them or don't you? (laughs) Um, God himself has given them the sacrificial system. He's not throwing that out the window. What he's saying is, without a contrite and broken heart, it's worthless, right? You can't, it's the same kind of, Am I losing it? It's the same kind of thing um, where you talk about an apology. If, my, if the only point of my apology is to show you that I feel bad so that I earn your forgiveness, it's worthless. That doesn't mean, though, that if I'm really repentant, you don't still want an apology. You do. You do still want me to say I'm sorry. You just want it to mean something. Same thing is going on here. God wants Israel to be obedient in following the sacrifices and the commands that he's given them, but he wants them to do it with the right heart. I don't know if that's me. Am I hitting that with my arm? Um, I'll try not to. (laughs) Uh, So same thing here. Without the right heart, they're worthless. They're no good. But with a contrite heart, obedience matters. Following the, the, the way that God has laid out is important. Now, it's an incredible psalm. It shows us a ton about the depths of our sin and about what repentance looks like about our need for God's mercy and his grace and his work of transformation in our lives. When it comes to repentance, we, like David, need to cry out for mercy and open ourselves up to and call out to God for his transforming power in our lives. There's another point we can draw from this psalm, though, and it comes out if you ask a question. The answer is obvious once you've asked the question, but most of us don't think about it. How did David get from 2 Samuel 11 where his only question is, how do I cover my tracks, to 2 Samuel 12 and Psalm 51, 
where he's crying out, basically, how could I do, how could I have done this? How could I have done this to my God? Right? Like, that's a long journey. How did he get from one to the other? There's only one thing that moved him from 2 Samuel 11 to Psalm 51. He went nine months without taking a step on that journey, and then something happened. And that something was the word of God confronting him in the prison. Oh my goodness, should I just switch to the other mic? Hello? There, I apologized and I changed. That's a good illustration. <laughs> um, he's confronted with the Word of God. That's it. That's the journey. And that's really important to note because it highlights a couple things that we need a different perspective on. We need to have this perspective on confronting our sin, on understanding the grace of God in repentance, and on understanding a contrite heart. The whole thing going on with David, David didn't initiate it. David didn't get to a point where he felt bad enough that he composed Psalm 51. David didn't get to a point where he just couldn't handle being a sinner anymore and thought, you know what, I need to do something about this. God came to him. God sent the prophet Nathan to him. Now, that would not have been a fun encounter, okay? Let's be clear. None of us like confronting our sin. And yet, when we are confronted our, with our sin, that is exactly the time that God is in His grace giving us the opportunity to be open to His mercy and His change. Until that moment, until we are confronted with our sin, we don't do it. And yeah, we don't like that moment, but absent that moment, none of us get anywhere. And so we need that perspective, not just on that experience, but on the people who might be involved in that experience. Because we typically don't like the people confronting us, with, confronting us with our sin either. And if David had been a different king, the end of this story would have been the execution or exile of the prophet Nathan. And that's how we treat a lot of the people who bring our sin to our attention. Now, many of them are not as clever or as gentle as the prophet Nathan when they're confronting us with our sin. <laughs> and so sometimes we have some of that to get over first, um, where they're not being very gracious about it. But in the end, it's still the opportunity for change. And we need to recognize that about those moments in our life. The second thing that's true in that moment is that that moment is the grace of God. And therefore, we can say, and I think this is really important for us, when we are experiencing the movement towards repentance, when we've recognized our sin and we're sitting there realizing like, oh my goodness, what have I done? Or where you feel like you're a failure, you're starting to sink into your shame, God's grace is already present because you wouldn't have even recognized your sin if it wasn't for His grace. You wouldn't have even started to think, oh no, if it wasn't for His grace. And I say that because with that perspective for that experience, you hopefully can lift out of it, not lift yourself, but be lifted out of it by the recognition of the grace of God. Because too many of us in that moment, we wallow. We just sit in our shame. We recognize we've done wrong, and then we're just like, oh, I did it again. I feel awful. And then you just sit there. 
But the grace of God is already present, and he's not, he doesn't want you to wallow. He wants to lift you out of it. He wants to pour out his mercy upon you, and he wants to work transformation in your heart. So in the moment when you start to think and feel and sit in that shame is exactly the moment when you look up to God and say, have mercy on me. There's no need to stay there. There's no self-pity prize, right? Like God, and there's no time limit, or not time limit, there's no like, like God isn't sitting there with a stopwatch like you've wallowed long enough, good. Like he doesn't, he doesn't want you to be there. So that's the second thing to say, that in those times when you're experiencing that, turn quickly to the grace of God. He's already with you. The third thing to say is about the contrite heart. Again, just to reemphasize, it is a contrite heart that in those moments will turn to God. It is often our pride that keeps us in our shame because we want to get out ourselves. We want to do better next time, right? And so instead of throwing ourselves on the mercy of God, we go from plan A to plan B to plan C, and we cycle around and around and around. And, and sometimes you even feel like you're doing okay, like you've, you, you did this awful thing, whatever the sin is that you struggle with, and then you think you're getting out of it, and, and then it happens again. But this time I'm going to do better, and you, maybe you do do a little bit better, which is the worst, you, it is, because you, you convince yourself you can do it, but you can't. We need God. I, I've experienced this in my life many times. God has to break me out of that cycle. And so I want to conclude then by inviting you to join me in, in something that's a little bit dangerous, which is to pray Psalm 51 together. And it's a little bit dangerous because this is a psalm in which if you are really going to pray it, you are throwing yourself on the mercy of God. And you were opening him yourself up to his transforming power in your life. So don't do this unless you actually want that. <laughs> and I, I know that, of course, the right answer is, who wouldn't want that? Um, but God does things, and sometimes we're like, Lord, <laughs> what are you doing? The analogy I've heard once is that if your house is really messy, you might invite God to help you clean up. But before too long, he's remodeling. And you're like, Lord, I just needed a little help tidying up. And he's sitting there going, no, you didn't. <laughs> it's not what the problem was. So I, I do want you to pray Psalm 51. And I want all of us to be willing and, and able today to throw ourselves on the mercy of God and invite him to work in us. But know what you're getting into if you pray that prayer. That's all I'm saying. So let's pray together if you're willing to join me in this. Lord God, have mercy on us according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out our transgressions. Wash away our iniquity and cleanse us from our sin. Lord, we know our transgressions. Our sin is always before us. Against you, O oh Lord, have we sinned and done what is evil in your sight. You are right when you speak and justified when you judge. For we have been sinful from birth, twisted to the very core, Lord. We know you desire truth in our inmost being. Lord, thank you that you teach us wisdom in our inmost parts. Lord, you will cleanse us with hyssop, and we will be clean. You do wash us and make us whiter than snow. You will let us hear joy and gladness and restore the bones you have crushed to dancing. Hide your face, O Lord, from our sins and blot out our iniquities. Create in us pure hearts, O Lord, and renew in us steadfast spirits. 
Do not cast us away from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from us, but restore to us the joy of your salvation and grant us a willing spirit, willing spirits, Lord God, to sustain us. Lead us in teaching others your ways. Lead us in turning sinners back to you. Save us from blood guilt, O Lord. You are the God who saves us. Open our lips, O Lord, that our mouths may declare your praise. Lord, we know that you do not delight in sacrifice, that we can't manipulate, manipulate you, that you long for our hearts. And so we come to you today and offer you broken and contrite hearts. And Lord, we know you will not despise this offering. In your good pleasure, we ask that you make us prosper, and not just timbers, but your church as a whole. Build up the walls of your holy city, O Lord, and allow us to offer you right sacrifices in our songs and in our prayers, in our worship, in our giving, in our service, Sunday to Saturday, every day of the week, Lord. May we be a delight to you. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. <laughs>